Alright, so we are pausing our Eternal Word series through the Gospel of John, and we're going to jump back in after Easter Sunday. So this Sunday and next, we'll be uh, doing a, a two-part series on worship, on true worship, what true worship is and what it isn't, and then, um, then we're going to do a message on April the 10th about uh, the triumphal entry of Christ leading to his crucifixion, and then Easter Sunday, April 17th, I pray that you would invite your friends, your family, invite your neighbors, and come, and we can celebrate together the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So April the 17th. And then after April 17th, we will jump back into the Gospel of John, April 24th. So, two-part series called True Worship. I've titled this message... Uh, Part one of this little short series, I've titled this message, On That Day, Many Will Say. On That Day, Many Will Say. Would you you pray with me? Father, we come before you this morning and and we don't count it, um, we don't count it or take it lightly uh, that we get to gather together to worship you not only through song and through fellowship, not only through the through all the ways in which we interact with one another, but we get to worship you through the preaching and through the listening of your word. And God, I pray that uh, your people here today would, would hear your word. They would listen and hear and obey and, and live out the truths of, of, of scripture as you've spoken to us. And God, as we uh, approach this subject of worship, worshiping you in spirit and in truth and true worship, God, I pray that you would help us all today to hear and to apply your word. And God, I pray that you would help me this morning to open my mouth, to preach your word, and to exalt Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So have you ever talked a big game? You know what that phrase means, to talk a big game? I've talked a big game before leading up to playing golf. And I've been humbled enough on the golf course to understand I probably shouldn't talk a big game because I am not a very good golfer. I am better than someone who just started yesterday, <laughs> but potentially, but I am, I'm really not that great of a golfer. But, you know, in sports, sometimes people who get a, a little bit halfway decent at, at athletics, they can begin to talk a big game. You know, you have that team right now, the 15 seed, is it St. Peter's? from New Jersey, they're going to play North Carolina, and they have been talking a big game, but they've been backing it up by defeating all of these lower seeds, these teams that were supposed to have beat them. They beat Kentucky, and they have beaten, uh, who was the last one that they beat? They've won three games, Kentucky, Purdue, there was another one that they beat, had to beat, had to win three, but anyway, Kentucky was the first one, and I remember at the end of the game, the coach was interviewed from St. Peter's and the lady was asking, the interviewer was asking, you know, what, what do you think about this and so on and so forth. And, and he said, you know, some of our guys think that they should have played at Kentucky. They think they should have played at Kentucky. You know, Kentucky is a school that not many players get to ever play at. And these players, they thought, but then they, they, they backed up their thoughts and their big talk about their game and they won and they're winning. And we love to see that happen, but there's many people who talk a big game, but they don't back it up. You've also heard the phrase, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Or or maybe this phrase, actions speak louder than words. Actions speak louder than words. And when you talk a big game and you don't back it up, you are an imposter. You're an imposter. And so this is 
by way of introduction, this is my introduction to, to talk about worship. And the truth is, is that there are those who talk a big game as concerning Christ and their relationship with Christ, but they're imposters. And talk is cheap. Actions speak louder than words. And then there are those who talk of Christ and they live for Christ and their whole life is an act of worship. But this reality of true worshipers and false worshipers is all throughout scripture from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament into the book of Revelation and to the consummation of the age. There will always be true worshipers who are genuine believers in Christ who don't just talk a big game but back up what they say. And so genuine worship, genuine worship, talking about true worship, can only come from the heart of a true worshiper. So just follow. It's really simple. This is the crux of my entire message here this morning, is that genuine worship, true worship, can only come from the heart of a genuine worshiper. And so the opposite of true worship, opposite of genuine worship, It's false worship. Worshiping idols would be false worship. We worship lots of things in this life. We worship lots of things, possessions and experiences and all those things. And we create idols. We may not have idols that we make with our hands and we bow down and we worship those idols. But those idols can take many different shapes. and, And worshiping idols is false worship. Worshiping false gods is false worship. We believe it's Christians, that Jesus is the only one true God, the only king of the universe, the creator of all things. And so every false God outside of Christ, if we worship those false gods, that is false worship. It's not true worship. And worshiping anything or anyone other than the one true God is false worship. And you will either be, in this life, you will either be a true worshiper or you will be a false worshiper. There's no in-between. You can live in the in-between world, but if the in-between world makes you a false worshiper, you're either one or the other, true or false. And this is what we're going to unpack. Before, before we get to talking about next week, what does worship look like? What does it look like? What are the practical ways in which we worship God in spirit and in truth? I want to deal with the sub- subject of, of, of what it means to be a true worshiper. This is so important. False worship comes from the heart of a true of a false worshiper and true worship comes from the heart of a true worshiper. And where we left off last week in John 4, Jesus said that he was seeking, the Father was seeking true worshipers. This is right from the text in John 4. That, G, that, that the Father was seeking true worshipers, meaning that the opposite is true, which is that there are false worshipers. And the Father wants true worshipers. And Jesus, in his conversation with the Samaritan woman, tells her when she asked him, when she asked Jesus as a Jew, she said, you know, our fathers say you're to worship on this mountain and, 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 and you say you're to worship in Jerusalem. And, and, and he confronted her and said, listen, it's not going to be on this mountain or, or on Jerusalem that we worship the father for the father is, is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And he told her, he said, you worship what you do not know. And that is the foundation and the heart of a false worshiper. It's a worship of God that is not based on understanding or knowledge. And so at a basic level, a false worshiper is somebody who is worshiping God, but they do not know him. 
They do not know him. They don't know him. So we're going to look at a section in scripture, Matthew chapter 7. Many of you, if you've been in church any length of time in your life, you've heard this section. And and it's a very challenging section to read. It's a section that is very confrontive in its nature. And it really talks about a separation. It talks about a time that will come when many are going to say something, but their talk is cheap and they have not lived what they said and they are determined to be false worshipers. So we're going to look at this section in Matthew 7. It's the conclusion of Jesus' big sermon, his final sermon, his big sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. This is the conclusion. Jesus concludes with this. This is his conclusion. This is my introduction and my whole sermon, but this is his conclusion to his sermon. And he's concluding with the thought that there will be people who say that they're Christians, say that they're followers of God, but they really are not. Let's look at the text, Matthew 7. If you have your Bibles, would you open them to Matthew chapter 7? And we're going to look at verse 21 through 27. We're going to, I'm going to read it, and then we're going to look at these realities of false versus true worship. Matthew 7, starting in verse 21. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell And great was the fall of it. So what we're going to look at today, three simple points talking about what we see here, about the reality of those who say they're worshipers, Lord, Lord, but are really not. We're going to look at three realities from the text. First one will be that there will always be false worshipers who claim Christ. Secondly, true worshipers listen to the words of Christ. And we'll conclude this morning This powerful reality is that endurance under trial is like true worship that flows from the heart. So the first point we're going to unpack this morning from Matthew 7, this very controversial, confrontive section here that our Lord says. Our Lord said this. The first thought is this, is that there will always be false worshipers who claim Christ. There will always be people who say, I'm a believer, who will say, Lord, Lord. Look back at the text. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, and when he's saying on that day, what he's meaning is, is on that day of judgment. On the day when the scales will be balanced, when the scales will be weighed. And we'll either be found to have placed all our hope in the righteousness of Christ. Or we will have been found to have placed all our hope in our own righteousness. On that day. On that day, what some people will say is they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? So what the text is saying here is that there will be people on that day when the Lord will evaluate lives and they're going to come before the creator 
of the heavens and the earth and the creator of their life. And they're going to say, Lord, look at what I've said. Look at what I've done. Look at the miracles that I've performed in your name. And what does the text say? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Wow. Wow. Isn't that such a sobering reality of Scripture? That on that day, we can come and present all of the things that we are placing our hope in for righteousness before the Creator, but none of that is the grounds with which the Lord will receive us into heaven. Now, it's interesting, it says here that not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom. The word Lord means owner or master. So what these people are saying when they're declaring to Christ on that day of judgment, they're saying, you are our master. Lord, Lord, master, Lord, owner, master. We're your servant. You are our Lord. Jesus is saying here in this text that there will be some who will call him master, Lord, but this declaration is not true. Some will claim that Jesus is their master, but it is not true. And what they have done, what they are saying is, is that they've come to Christ and they're saying, I've spoken for Christ. I've delivered the oppressed for, for Christ. I've done miracles for Christ. You know, and for many of us, that would be all the evidence that we're looking for. We, we, we would judge that, if, that somebody is really following the Lord if we see miracles take place in their life or, or we see demons being cast out. Well, certainly that person knows the Lord. But the truth is, is that God judges things differently than we do. When, G, when, when, when the prophet Samuel went to the house of Jesse to look for the new king, to anoint a new king, the, the prophet thought that it was Jesse's oldest son that was going to be the king. And what did the Lord tell the prophet? Don't judge the way that man judges for man looks on the outside, but God looks on the, on the heart. What did we learn in John chapter 3 leading up to the, the, the conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus? We learned there in those three short verses that God knows what is in man. He needs no one to tell him what is in man. God knows all that is inside of our heart. And that, that's, that's something that, for, you know, on one side of that reality, that is such a comfort to know that God knows my fears, my anxieties, my worries. But it is terrifying to know on the other side that God knows all that is in my heart. And this section in Matthew 7 is bringing to the forefront this reality that there will be a day when some will stand before the Lord and they think that they're okay, but they're not because God knows their heart. And we would look at all the outward evidences in people's lives and say, well, look, look at what they did. They were so generous in giving and they gave to the poor and they gave to charity and they, and they, and they prayed for the sick and they cast out demons and they did all these things. Certainly that is a believer and certainly They're going to go to heaven if anybody's going to go to heaven. But God sees differently. And this is shocking. It's shocking. But what is it that Jesus is saying to these people on that day? What is the reason why he's saying, depart from me? It's it's centered around this one word, new. Or no. They're coming and they're saying, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this, we've done this. And Jesus said, depart, why? I never knew you. 
That word new comes from the word gnosko. That word gnosko is the same type of word that is used to describe intimate knowledge. Like a husband and a wife have been married for 50 years, they know each other. After you've been married for 50 years to somebody, who's in here has been married for 50 plus years to your spouse? There's not much you don't know after 50 years. And yes, thank the Lord for 50 years of marriage. We're going on 18 and I almost lost it at Bucky's. Um, but after 50 years of marriage, you know some things about your spouse. And, and this is the knowledge that the Lord is saying. He's saying, you're coming to me thinking because of all the things you've done, that that's what's going to make you right with me. But I'm telling you, I never knew you. I didn't know you. I'm not in relationship with you. Depart from me. There will always be, there will always be false worshipers who claim Christ, who are coming to church, who worship every Sunday, who come to church and they gather with the assembly and they, they're faithful to attend and maybe even serve and get involved. But there will always be some people who look on the outside like they fit the bill, but, but God is the one who ultimately knows do they truly belong to him? Does he have intimate knowledge of them and, and them of him? This is a knowledge that God knows. So, so how, how, how does it happen? I guess that's what I think of when I read this section. How does it happen that some people can be false worshipers who claim Christ and cast out demons and prophesy? That means to speak for the Lord and, and, and to do miracles. How does that happen to have somebody who does those types of things, but in the end, God doesn't know them and they don't know God. Here's some reasons why I think it can happen. Is that people hear the gospel but do not understand it. You remember the parable of the sower in Matthew 13? Jesus talked about how there's different types of soils. And that the word of God, the parable of the gospel, the, 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 the gospel of the kingdom is, is preached. And, and it's only in the soil that the gospel goes where people hear it and they understand it. And then they produce fruit. And so I think sometimes we preach, it can be a, a false gospel that's preached. And, and, and this, can lead to, this can lead to this second reason why I think people can end up like that in that day is that people come to Jesus for superficial reasons. And I put the prosperity gospel in parentheses there. And most of you, when you think of that, you think of money. But that's not what the prosperity gospel is only. The prosperity gospel is a superficial gospel. It's, it's, it's a gospel that says, I come to Christ because of the benefits package that is presented to me, not because of my sin and my recognition of God is holy and my need for forgiveness. But I come because somebody presents a, a message that says that Jesus wants to do all of these things in your life, provide all these things for you, provision and finances and peace and joy. Come and receive. Who doesn't want to come and receive? Come and receive all these things from Christ. But that is a faulty, incomplete gospel. We put the benefits before the true gospel. Because God does give us peace. And he does provide for us. He, and we have lots of, we have joy unspeakable and full of glory when we follow Christ. But a false gospel is a message that puts the results of the gospel in front and parades that as the gospel. Do you follow me? And that's a reason why people can stand before the Lord in the end. As the text says, I'm not making this up. This is Matthew 7. This is the conclusion of Jesus' sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. He says, there will be a day where I will look at people and say, I never knew you. 
because they believed a message that was not the truth of the gospel. Here's another reason why I think it can happen in people's lives is that people attend church for reasons of expedience. And maybe those reasons are family tradition. My mom did it. My dad did it. My grandmother, my great-grandmother. This is what we do. We go to church. It is a family tradition, but it's not built on intimate knowledge of Christ and him. Maybe it's social benefit. Maybe people want to come and worship with with people because they're looking for their place in society. They're looking for a group of people to belong to. And so they come and they worship. And this should be, should it not be a place where we can find community and fellowship? Or, Or maybe people come for business opportunity. It's expedient to come because, hey, I can make connections and contacts. And I've got this business, this item that I'm selling. Our Lord promised in Matthew 7, He promised in other parts of the New Testament there would always be false believers mixed with the true. And this reality we see in Matthew 7, it should cause us to tremble. It should cause us to walk in humility. It should cause us to examine our hearts. And and this is not something that is just in this section. We see it all over the New Testament. I'm going to give you a couple of other examples. This is before, earlier, a few verses earlier in Matthew 7, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said, Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in what? Sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are what? Ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree will bear good fruit, but the, dis- the diseased tree bears bad fruit. You see that contrast? They look one way on the outside, but on the inside they're different. What about this? This is Mark chapter 13. Jesus speaks again, and he's talking about lying signs and wonders. Matthew 13, he says, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. So there will become... There will will come a time, and I believe the time is now, where people will come and say that they are performing signs and wonders and miracles, but they are false signs. And the Lord is saying, Beware. Beware, I've told you these things beforehand. And here's, here's, here's a way to summarize this. Beware of those who say, come to Christ and receive your miracle instead of come to Christ and take up your cross and follow him. Beware of those who say, come to Christ and receive your miracle instead of come to Christ and take up your cross and follow him. Here's another section. Matthew 13, Jesus tells a parable about the end of the age and the harvest, the great end time harvest and the the gathering of wheat and the separation of the wheat from the weeds and the tares. And Jesus culminates this parable in Matthew 13, 27 through 30. He says this, and the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? He said to them, an enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then then, then do you want us to go and gather them? Speaking of the weeds. But he said, no, no. Lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned. But gather the wheat into my barn. There will always be false worshipers mixed in with the true. There will always be false worshipers who claim Christ. The idea here, counterfeit mixed with the genuine. It's true. 
Jesus said it. Counterfeit mixed with the genuine. And when Estelle and I went on our trip to the beach just last week, the first stop that we made uh, after gas, we stopped for lunch and we went to Five Guys. And we got a burger, I believe it was in the Gulfport area. And so we're in line and I get up to the counter and so I'll pull out my wallet and um, I pulled out a $100 bill to pay because it cost almost half of that for lunch today uh, or on Wednesday. And so the, the lady looks at it and she says, is this the real deal? And I said, um, best to the best of my knowledge, it's the real deal. If it's, if it's not, I have no idea where it came from. She's just like, she starts laughing. She says, well, funny you say that. Uh, my niece is serving time right now, right now for counterfeiting. <laughs> so we're like, wow. And so Estelle, Estelle is like, we're looking at her and, and like, she's serious. And she's looking at the hundred dollar bill, moving it around. And Estelle asked her, how does someone get involved in counterfeiting? How does that happen? Right? And that would be the same question that I would ask around this subject. How does it happen that somebody ends up deceived like that? We talked about a few things earlier. But the the truth is, is that what the section is is saying in Matthew 7 and what it's saying in Matthew 13, these other parables, these other sections, is that there will always be a counterfeit mixed with the genuine. So so how does this apply to us? This first reality is we're moving along thinking about true worship versus false worship. Who is it that can actually worship genuinely in spirit and in truth? Well, it has to be a true worshiper, not a false worshiper. False worshipers cannot worship in spirit and in truth. Because they don't have a foundation of truth. So how does that meet our world? And this is the first thing I think of. Is that this truth that we see our Lord communicating to us. Should cause us to think deeply about our faith. Should cause us to evaluate. To see if we are in the faith. So maybe you're here today. And you need to stop and think and evaluate. Am I in the faith? Where am I placing my hope for eternity? Is it in my own good works? Or is it in the full, complete righteousness of Christ? Paid on my behalf. Imputed to to me because of my faith in that work. Where am I placing my hope? It should cause us to stop and evaluate and think deeply. And And here's another way in which I think it applies to our life. Is that we should take seriously the way in which we handle God's word. And articulate the gospel. Some people say, well, Pastor Ben, you make too big of a deal about the details of the gospel. You make too big of a deal to focus on all of these details. Well, I'm here to tell you, details matter because God wrote a book. He wrote a book and he put words in it and those details matter. Every word, all scripture, 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God. And profitable for reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. And so the details matter. And this reality should cause us to tremble as believers and as proclaimers of the gospel that we get it right. Why? Because you can get it wrong. You can get it wrong and you can lead people astray. And they're placing their faith in a wrong foundation, in a false gospel. We must be clear in our preaching of the gospel. Listen, a watered down gospel does no one any good. 
does no one any good, doesn't do good for me, and doesn't do good for you, for anyone. The gospel must be preached in its totality, in the weight of all that God has revealed in Holy Scripture. That he is holy, that man is sinful, that sin demands justice and judgment and payment and that Christ has fully absorbed the wrath of God on our behalf. The gospel must be preached in its fullness because the details matter. And as a result of the fact that people get it wrong and they don't preach the whole gospel, they preach a false gospel. They water it down. As a result of that, there will always be false worshipers who claim Christ. We see this right in the text. Jesus said on that day, many, many, many. Some translations will will emphasize that it's the most, the majority. Many, many will say, Lord, Lord, we've done, we've done, we've done. But he'll say, I never knew you. There will always be false worshipers. The second reality as we go on in this message is that true worshipers listen to the words of Christ. So we have this contrast that we just saw. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Now we get into this section in Matthew 7 where where Jesus is continuing. He's concluding his sermon on the mount and he's comparing and contrasting those that are building on a solid foundation, the rock, which is Christ, and those who are not. And he's contrasting and saying that those who, are, who hear, hear the words of the Father, hear the word of God and listen, are like those who build their house on a rock. And those who hear and don't obey are like ones building on a sand, comparing and contrasting. Look at what it says at the first, the first verse, the first half of the first verse. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them. Hears and does them. Everyone then. He's saying there will be a day where many will say, Lord, Lord, we've done, but they really didn't know. They really didn't know him. He says, okay, let me show you what it's all about. Here's what it's all about. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, he'll be likened to a man who built his house on a rock. True worshipers listen to the words of Christ. True worshipers listen to the words of God. How do we know they listen? How do we know they listen? Because they obey. They obey. Listening without obeying is proof that you really didn't listen. And all the parents said, amen. Listening without obeying is proof that you really didn't listen. To obey, you know what it means to obey? What really obedience really means is the idea of somebody knocking on the door the front door, and you open the door. To listen, to obey, means that you answer the door. You heard it. You ever go to someone's house, you ring the doorbell, and they don't hear it so that they don't come, but have you ever been in someone's house, you you knock on the door, you ring the doorbell, you know they hear, and they're shuffling around because they don't want to come talk to you? They heard, but they didn't answer the door. That's what obedience is. You you, You hear the word of God, And you answer the door. You obey. There will be good fruit in the life of somebody who hears. Obedience to the word of God demonstrates the validity of the internal faith of the heart. Obedience to the word of God demonstrates the validity of the internal faith of the heart. Or said another way, true believers do not have an indifference to the word of God. Genuine believers, true worshipers do not have an indifference. What does it mean to be indifferent? They don't have an indifference to the word of God. To be indifferent means, I I take it or leave it. You know, 
I love every now and then to hear Pastor Ben preach, or I'll read my Bible every now and then, just kind of indifferent, keep it at a distance. A genuine believer is not indifferent to the word of God because it is, because it is through the word of God that they've been transformed and changed from the inside out. Indifference to the word of God is evidence that a person lacks in their understanding of who God is. A genuine believer, on the other hand, will long for the word of God. They will not be satisfied with the shallow version of Christianity that does not take God's word serious. I'm going to say that one, one more time. A genuine believer will long for the word of God and they will not be satisfied with the shallow version of Christianity that does not take God's word serious. You can, you can say, right, talk is cheap, actions speak louder than words. You can say a lot about what you do, meaning that they will, will say, Lord, Lord, I've done, I've done, I've done. But they really didn't obey in truth. God's the one who gets to judge our heart, ultimately in the end. But it's one thing to hear the word of God, but it's another thing to obey it and to really demonstrate the fruit of life change. To to demonstrate the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel begins to be demonstrated in your marriage, on your job, in your relationship with your kids, in the way in which you speak. You start seeing fruit being developed because you didn't just hear, but what you heard actually transformed your heart and you began to demonstrate that you heard by the way you lived your life to obey the Lord. We see an indifference to the word of God in the nation of Israel We're going to see it here. I want to show you a section in the book of Amos, the small book, the minor prophet, prophet Amos. He he, he mainly prophesied to the northern kingdom of Judah, but but he prophesied to the nation of Israel. And and in this prophecy, uh, he, he really highlights two primary sins that the nation of Israel were committing. The first one was that they did not pursue justice for 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 the oppressed. They did not pursue justice for the oppressed. And secondly, He's confronting them because there was an absence of true worship. There was an absence of true worship for the nation of Israel. During this time when Amos is writing this prophecy from the Lord to the nation of Israel, to the divided kingdom, he is writing in the season of physical wealth and prosperity. He's writing during a time where things are prosperous and things are good. They're not in a, a, a turmoil. They're peaceful. It looks like on the outside. But spiritually, they were barren. Spiritually, they were empty. There was not true worship. So Amos has five visions. You can look at this. Uh, you can go through and see this in, in the book of Amos. You start seeing it in, in Amos chapter 8, where we're going to look at. And in, 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 in Amos chapter 8, you see his fourth vision. And, and in his fourth vision, he begins to describe, he sees ripe fruit. Is, being blo- is blossoming, ripe fruit. And, and this is a sign that Israel was ripe for the judgment of God. Why were they ripe for the judgment of God? Look at Amos chapter 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. I want us to process this. Think about this for a second. The Lord says to the nation of Israel, I will send a famine, not of water, not of bread, but I will send a famine and there will be a lack of desire to hear the word of God. 
That's a form of God's judgment. One commentary says it like this about this section. God warns that he will send his wrath upon the people, not only in natural calamities, but in a famine for the word of God. They would not listen to the word of God when they had the opportunity. Therefore, he will take his word away from them. Wow. One of God's judgment on a people who are indifferent to his words, to his commands, is he will give them what they want. You don't want the word of God taught seriously? You don't want the word of God that feeds your soul? You don't want a clear declaration of the gospel? You don't want the word of God? You don't want my words? Well, then I won't give them to you. I will send a famine of the hearing of the word of God. And I'll give you what you want. Paul addresses this to Timothy and says, there will come a day when people will have itching ears and they're going to want you, Timothy, to preach what they want to hear. That is a form of God's judgment where people say, I don't want the word. I don't want the word. I don't want it taught. I don't want to explain. I don't want to be confronted. I don't want my sin to be confronted. I don't want those things to be talked about. I don't want the word. Just as in Amos's day, the nation of Israel, they didn't want the word. Why? Because they were prosperous. And if the point of worshiping God is physical prosperity, well, they had all that they wanted. They had all that they needed, but they didn't realize that they were poor and naked and blind and wretched, as we see in Revelation. So if I have all that I need physically and that's all that God is there for, then I don't need the word. And God says, okay, if that's what you want as a people, Israel, that's what you want as a people, Western Christianity, I'll give it to you. And you will have preachers who accumulate themselves, pulpits and platforms. And they won't teach the word. They'll give people what they want to hear. One of God's judgments on the people who are different is to say, okay, I will give you what you want. There was an absence of true worship in the nation of Israel. Why? Because there was an indifference to the word of God. True worship and the word of God are inseparably linked. True worship and the word of God are inseparably linked. If you, if you are void of the word of God in your life and you don't have a place of reverence and honor and love for it, there can be no true worship. True worship and the word of God are inseparably linked. True worship is the result of not indifference to the word of God, but a love for God's word. Look at Psalms 119. It says, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. Psalm 1 through 3, comparing and contrasting. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But what? His delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither in all that he does. He prospers. The verses go on to say the wicked are not so. They are like the chaff that the wind blows away. But the blessed man, the righteous man, the godly man, the true worshiper, his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight is. His pleasure, his love, not indifference. True worshipers will listen to the words of Christ. There will always be false worshipers mixed in with the true, but the true worshipers, they listen to the words of Christ. Why? Because they love the words of Christ. Why? Because they love Christ. 
True worshipers listen to the words of Christ because they love the words of Christ because they love Christ. They love every word. They love every word of Christ because they love Christ. I hate to keep talking about my wife so much today, but I remember when I first fell in love with her and many of you can relate to this. When we were dating, I would stay on the phone with her just to listen to her breathe. You wouldn't even have to say, she wouldn't have to say a word. But certainly when a word came out, I was hanging on that word. I mean, we would just sit there for hours just talking until she'd pass out because she likes to go to bed early. I'd call her, we'd talk. Our first conversation was an hour and a half, two hours when I called her for the first time. And we just talked and talked. I, I, I would hang on every word because I was falling in love with her. It really didn't matter what she said. I just wanted to hear her beautiful voice. Hang on every word. This is the picture. This is the idea that true worshipers love the word of God. They love the word of God because they love Christ. So how does this apply to us? What should this do in our heart? I think it, it 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 should be the impact. May it be said of us that we hang on every word of God. Just like I did on the phone with my wife 20 years ago. May we hang on every word. May you bang down the doors to get here on Sunday. You'd be like, open the doors. I'm ready for the word. I'm ready to fellowship with God's people and have the word encourage us together. I'm ready for the Bible to be open, to be read because I'm hanging on every word. You're telling everyone that you know, you have to come and hear the word of God. Because it is life, it is breath, it is everything. May that be said. This is how it applies to us. True worshipers love the words of Christ because they love Christ. True worshipers will listen to the word of God. Everyone then who listens to the word of God. There will always be false worshipers who claim Christ. And true worshipers listen to the words of Christ. And thirdly, As we conclude this morning, endurance under trial is like true worship that flows from the heart. Look back at the text, the concluding verses here of the comparison and the contrast between those who hear and obey versus those who don't. Look back at the text. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain fell, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, but it did not fall. Because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is ultimately speaking of ultimate judgment. It is a great fall for those who hear but don't obey, for those who think they know God but they don't. The fall is great. The judgment is great. The judgment is eternal. The great falling away. 
Again, comparison, contrasting, comparing and contrasting. Both the genuine believer and the false can hear the word of God, but only the genuine believer really listens. Only the true worshiper really listens. A true worshiper loves the word of God and listens to the word of God and lives the word of God. And the opposite is what Jesus is saying here in the conclusion to his Sermon on the Mount. He's saying that there will be those who are not true. Lord, Lord, we've done, but they really didn't do it from the heart. He says, and here is what it is like for those who say, Lord, Lord, it is like you're building your house on a sand pile. When the storms of life come, you have no foundation and you're going to fall. And the fall ultimately, not only will it be bad in this life, but the fall will be great. It will be great in the afterlife, in the life to come. Both true believers and false believers here. But the difference is who obeys and walks in truth. But here's another reality is that both true believers and false believers go through trials. Did you notice that the winds and the rain beat on both houses? God, God allows trials to beat on everybody's house. We are not exempt from suffering as believers in Jesus Christ. That is a connection to a false gospel. That is a, a view, a paradigm of the false gospel. We are not exempt from trials and suffering and pain and disease and sickness. We walk through them. Whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, trials come to everyone. The winds and the rain beat on both houses, both lives. But only the faith of a genuine worshiper, genuine believers, will endure under trials. That's one of the ways in which you really see it's a test of our faith. Will we believe when life gets hard? The foundation of your belief of who Christ is and what he came to do is tested whenever you go through suffering. If you have set up God, as I said a few months back or a few weeks back, as a fix-it Felix, and he's just here to fix all of your earthly trials and keep you from suffering, when you do suffer, he didn't hold up the end of his bargain, then you walk away from that God. But if your faith is resting in the finished work of the cross, that Christ has secured for you for eternity, then no matter what trials you walk through, your faith is only deepened when you walk through the trials because you know your eyes are set on heaven. People often want to know what deep worship looks like. What does deep worship look, look, look like? People often want to ask the question, what does passionate worship look like? Look like. And most of the time, we're going to talk about this next week, but most of the time when we think about deep and passionate worship, we're, t- we're talking about raising your hands or kneeling down or jumping around, dancing, singing loudly. And that's what we think deep and passionate worship is. But that, that's not what it is. It can be, but that's not the true definition. I, when looking at this context here, the conclusion of Jesus' sermon, this is what I would say that deep worship, passionate worship looks like the genuine believer continuing in faith in spite of the trials they walk through. That is deep and passionate worship. So I want to encourage you, I want to encourage you about prayer for some of our church family and some church members that are, are walking through a trial. Johnny and Gail Berrios, they're, they're here this morning. and I see... I see them walk in often. They park on this side. Sometimes I don't know if they do it every time, but I saw Johnny Barrios walk 
as I was in my office in the back corner, walk this direction outside up front. And he's just smiling. He's happy. I don't know what he was saying to somebody, but he kind of did this to his body like this. And, you know, he's been walking through a trial. He was diagnosed with cancer. And so he's getting ready for an operation, I think, on Tuesday or Wednesday of this coming week. And one of the things that's impressed me with Johnny and Gail is that when I talk to them and I see them, they're filled with joy. They're filled with peace. Now, look, no doubt when they're laying their head on their pillow at night, the darkness of the night tries to invade and become darkness in their soul because of the fear that is undoubtedly there. But when I saw him walk in and I see you in your situation, in your life, when I see you walk in and you're here in faith and you're worshiping the Lord, that is some of the most deepest and passionate worship that can ever be communicated this side of heaven. Endurance under trial is one of the highest forms of worship for the believer this side of heaven. Endurance under trial. Oh, it's so encouraging. I was having a little bit of a hangover from Bucky's. And I saw Johnny Barrios walk in and I thought, snap out of it, Ben. Come on, get in the mode. Come on. You, you have to preach God's word. If Johnny Barrios and Gail Barrios are here to worship their Savior, then there's no reason why I can't be here to worship him in spirit and in truth with passion and zeal and excitement. The Apostle Paul demonstrates the kind of faith that Johnny and Gail Berrios demonstrate it's the kind of worship that comes through suffering. Apostle Paul suffered greatly, but he faithfully endured for the sake of the gospel. In 2 Corinthians 11, if you want to be depressed a little bit, read 2 Corinthians 11 about all the things that Paul suffered. Or if you want to be encouraged, read all the things that Paul suffered, because you would compare his suffering to yours and be like, okay, perspective changes a lot. Shipwrecked, naked, abandoned, hungry, beaten with rods, stoned, left for dead. You're like, oh my goodness. Look at the culmination in 2 Corinthians 12. Listen to the Apostle Paul. Suffered greatly for the sake of the gospel. He talks to the Lord about a thorn that has a thorn in his side. He says, Lord, please remove it. Please remove it three times. But the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For the sake of Christ. That is worship. For the sake of Christ. That's worship. When I live my life for the sake of Christ and his kingdom and his gospel, no matter what I walk through, no matter the discouragement, no matter how, how, how difficult my job is and, 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 and my relationships are, no matter the challenges I face, when I live my life for the sake of Christ and I endure those trials and those difficulties for the sake of Christ and his gospel so his glory can be seen, deep worship, passionate worship. This is true worship from the heart of a true worshiper. I live my life for the sake of Christ. I endure under trials for the sake of Christ so that others may come to know and love and worship Christ. 
there will always be false worshipers who claim Christ. On that day, many will say, Lord, Lord. Listen to the words of Christ one more time. Matthew 24. Speaking of the end of the age, Jesus told his disciples, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, see that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed. See to it that you are not alarmed. For this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation. And put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. Then the end will come. So what should our desire be in light of all of that? No lip service. No cheap talk. No imposters. What should our desire be? True worship. Flowing from the hearts of true worshipers. Who put on display the glory of God. By enduring to the end for the sake of Christ. That should be our desire. Would you pray with me? Lord, may that be true of our hearts. No lip service. No imposters. No cheap talk. But true worship. True worship that is developed through the fire. True worship that is developed through enduring and persevering in spite of all that is going on around in the world. And all that is going on around in our life. True worshipers aren't here for the fluff. That aren't here... They aren't here just to hear what they want to hear. True worshipers are here to receive the word of God, as it says in James, the implanted word that is able to save our souls. God, may we be, may this house be filled with true worshipers. And if there are any here today, that after examining their heart and their life here today, they acknowledge and recognize that they are not true worshipers. That they've believed a false gospel. I pray that they would repent and believe in the gospel. Lord, help us to endure, to put on display the glory of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I love you. I'll see you next week.